If you follow uh, the superhero genre at all, uh, there are a couple of uh, themes that permeate that world. Uh, one is, uh, one thing that, that permeates all the storylines is that the world is a dark place. And sometimes it's because there's a villain, like a Joker or Lex Luthor. Sometimes it's that there's a ton of crime and people have lost hope. Sometimes it's because there's a time of war and it's difficult and, and, and painful. But almost any superhero movie uh, that you watch, almost anyone has that as a major theme. The world is a dark place. The second theme that permeates all of those movies is that of the hero. That all is lost, but. All is lost, but there's a Batman full of angst who's willing to do battle. All is lost, but look, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Superman. And he enters the story to save the story. This is almost always a theme. There is a man, there is a woman, there is a league, there is a group that stands ready to serve and stands ready to do battle and stands ready to make the difference that the world needs to make. And it is a reminder to us this morning that one man, one woman, uh, one group of people can make a huge difference. It is true. We've seen it all throughout our history. Consider Rosa Parks for a minute. Rosa Parks, the civil rights activist who refused to surrender her seat to a passenger on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Her defiance sparked the Montgomery bus boycott uh, that, that launched a nationwide effort uh, to bring back racial segregation of public facilities. One woman that stepped up and said, I will not give up my seat. I will stand my ground. I will make a difference. The world is a dark place, but one, but one person, but one. In a much, much smaller, less than scale, or admittedly, this is much smaller or, or less than, but consider Steve Jobs for a minute. Do you remember uh, our first computer that our family ever had was in the corner of the house on a desk that needed to be reinforced because it was so heavy? Right? And uh, one of the things that has always uh, impressed me about Steve Jobs is that he saw a world that literally nobody else saw, that the idea of a computer fitting into your pocket and doubling as a phone. Right? You think you have a phone, you really have a computer uh, that sometimes you use as a phone, right? and that sometimes I use as a phone. But he had a vision for something that didn't exist. He, he was able to see something that nobody else was able to see, and he changed the world. Uh, he changed the world in a profound way. Consider back to a more serious level, all right? Consider Jesus just for a moment, how the world is a dark place, but, but one man, one man steps into the darkness and brings about salvation. If you're on social media, I have this entire quote uh, printed on my, my social media page, Steve Higgs. Uh, so you can actually go there and follow along with this. Um, and uh, just if you wouldn't mind, if you do that, go ahead and like it just so I can kind of know that you saw it. I'm, I'm just kind of curious about that. But this entire quote uh, is there on my page if, if you're on social media. Uh, if you're not, we're not friends. I'm hurt. All right, so, uh, but this, this is from the incomparable Christ. More than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of this life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of his home country in which he lived, and that was during his exile and tri childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. 
In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the waves as pavement, and hushed the sea to be asleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made absolutely no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, never once wrote a book, yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast as having more students as him. He never marshaled an army, he never drafted a soldier, he never fired a gun, and yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each week, multitudes congregate at worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past, proud statesmen of Greek and, and, and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more and more. Though time has spanned 1,900 years between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives his enemies could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of the heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, feared by devils, as the risen, personal Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen? Amen. That is Jesus. That is the Christ. That is our Savior and our Messiah. The world is a dark place, but... But one man, one woman, one group comes into the, they invade the darkness and they make a difference. That is what our story is about today in the book of Genesis. And uh, how, that's a long introduction to it, but that is what our story is about. And we are going to spend three weeks looking at this story. Part one, part two, and part three. It takes up four chapters of, 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 of the book of Genesis, which we are in 12 chapters for this whole series. And this story is profound enough and important enough that it takes up four total chapters if you count uh, the covenant made later uh, with Noah. And it is the story you've all heard of before, the story of Noah and the ark. So let me, let me show it to you today. We're gonna look at the first part of it today. Story about the difference one family and one man can make. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of humankind was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe uh, from the face of the earth the human uh, race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But, but, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. 
So make yourself an ark of cypress wood and make rooms in it and coat it with pitch from the inside out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below uh, the roof an opening of one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark. Remember that this is going to become important uh, next Sunday. I'm asking you to hang on to it for a week, but put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I, tell, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter your, the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, keep them alive with you. Uh, that's why I would never you know, be chosen. It's like, yeah, I keep all this alive. I don't know if I can do that. But um, two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you again to be kept alive. Even snakes, yeah, you gotta keep them alive. Um, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything as God had commanded him. So next week, we're going to look at floods. We're going to look at arcs. We're going we're to look at all of that stuff uh, next Sunday. But today, I want you to consider the world as it is described in this text. The world that Noah lived in, the world that Noah and his family functioned in, look at how it is described. And I'm going to ask you to ascend into some darkness with me so that we can come out into victorious light. All right? But there's going to be about halfway through this sermon that you're going to be like, I'm depressed. And that is as it should be. There is a way out of it, I promise you. But if you'll just descend with me. Here is how the world is described that Noah lived in. It is described, first of all, as wicked. There are some other ways that this word could be translated in the Hebrew Bible. It is evil, mischievous, hurtful, unpleasant, hideous. The official definition is the unethical, immoral activity against another person, whether by speech or by practice. Right? And this is kind of an interesting Hebrew word in that way to me, because we typically think of wicked or evil behavior as exactly that. It is taking action against somebody and doing them harm. harm. But this Hebrew word actually carries a little more weight with it when it comes to a person's speech. So the Hebrew word is a reminder to us that it is possible for speech to be wicked and for speech to be harmless. And the Bible actually has a list of these types of sins, if you will, right? Consider the sin of slander, right? It is, uh, it is a, uh, a sin that, that uses your speech, and it's a sin that makes a false accusation against someone in order to hurt their reputation and to get what you want. So I have a friend in ministry years and years ago, he made a decision that nobody really liked and he found uh, that his name and particularly his marriage in his church started to be slandered. Uh, now, because it was a church and everybody was Christians, uh, it was couched as a prayer request, right? Please pray for our pastor and his marriage, right? That, that sort of thing. And it makes us feel good that we're actually praying for someone. Uh, but all of a sudden this rumor started to circulate uh, that his marriage was in trouble and it was absolutely untrue. Just somebody didn't like a decision that he made. That's slander. Um, consider name calling. Name calling is a sin that seeks to identify someone by their sin and to degrade them as less than a loved person of God. It makes my skin crawl when I hear language in our culture like that person's a monster or that person's an animal. 
And listen, their behavior may be deplorable and their behavior may be wrong, but when you reduce someone through name calling to a monster or an animal, here's what happens in a culture that does that. All of a sudden you give yourselves permission to do whatever you want to do against them because in your mind, they're not a real human. There's something else. Consider gossip. Right? Gossip is a sin that seeks to speak about private matters with someone who has no power and no authority to do anything about it. So slander is a sin that's a lie. Gossip very well could be true. Just the person you're talking to has no ability to do anything about it. So what is the motivation for gossip? Well, you're not seeking to make things better. So in some way, we must be trying to make ourselves feel better. Gossip is one of those unhelpful sins. Or consider judging. Judging is a sin that happens when you assume you know the motives of someone when you couldn't possibly uh, know the motives of someone, that they are a racist for sure, or they hate younger generations, or they hate older generations, or they're bigoted, or they're sexist, or whatever, and you're free to judge a person's actions as right or wrong. The Bible actually says rightly divide, that, that we are free to do that, but we're not to judge motives when we couldn't possibly understand what a person's motives are. So that, that's, that's this Hebrew word. It's using speech uh, to, to accomplish ungodly things. The next way it's described is, is it's described as violent. And this gets to the action side of things, that one of the best translations of this word in Noah's day is the word cruelty. In other words, the Hebrew text is saying that in Noah's culture, they were just plain mean to each other. Right? They wanted something, they took it. They wanted to say something, they said it. They felt angry, they were itching for a fight. They felt wrong, they looked to settle the score. They were, it was just a mean culture. They were just mean to one another. They were violent. And the last thing that's said about it is they were corrupt. And it goes to individual corruption, but it also goes to corruption that is embedded in the social systems of the day. This might be the Gen Xer in me, and I totally admit that, but I am very skeptical of big systems that are designed to care about people, right? You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? It just seems like the bigger the system gets, the more prone it is to corruption, the more prone it is to waste, the more prone it is to misuse of money. And this could be a governmental system, uh, this could be a religious system. Uh, this could be uh, a not-for-profit system. The system, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, for whatever reason, it seems, and this happened in Noah's day too, the system became corrupt. Uh, the, the, the system ran amok. The system began to use things for the benefit of the people that ran the system. And I think that God has designed systems for us to care for one another, but they tend to be smaller systems, not bigger systems. Have you ever noticed that? Is that God uh, designed friendship as a way to care for one another. That's a small system, it's one or two people. Uh, God has designed family as a system to care for one another. Uh, God has designed the local church as a system to care for one another. And it's interesting is that these are some of the systems that our culture is kind of denigrating and tearing down in uh, lieu of larger, bigger systems. But the bigger the system becomes, the easier it is to corrupt. Family done well, and this is not to say it can't be done, but family done well is harder to corrupt than a governmental system. Friendship is harder to corrupt. Local church is harder to corrupt. And so this is how things are described in the days of Noah. Corrupt, violent, wicked. And it leads me to an important question, all right? We've descended as far as we're gonna descend. But let me ask you this. How would you describe our world and our culture? 
That's how Noah's life and, and culture and uh, 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 world was described. How would you describe our world? Maybe you would open up the newspaper and you would say, man, when I read the newspaper, it feels like we are becoming increasingly violent. It, it seems like there's a story after story where we hurt each other. Maybe you would say that. Maybe you would open up the social media, your social media page and you would become, man, it just seems like we are becoming increasingly hostile toward one another. It feels like everybody is just itching for a good fight over almost everything. Maybe you turn on the television and you would say, man, it just seems like when I watch TV, it just seems like we are getting increasingly unrighteous, that things are heading in the wrong direction. How would you describe our world? And more importantly than how would you describe our world is this question. As you evaluate the world in which you live in, how do you respond? How do you respond to your world? Do you get angry? Some people choose that method for sure. They decide, man, if you're going to attack my values and my belief, NBC, I'm going to attack your values and your belief. That, that I'm going to get angry and I'm going to boycott and I'm going to attack. You attack me, I'm attacking you. That's a lot of people, they view things that way. They get angry when they view, when they look at culture and they see uh, that, that, that uh, culture is described more Noah's way than maybe the way we would like to see it. So they, they get angry. Some people get disengaged. And they say, man, I am going to disengage from this culture and I'm going to turn inward to Christian culture and I'm just going to completely stay away from the things of this world. And some people get depressed. Some people choose that method. They just get really down, discouraged, melancholy. They throw up their hands and essentially say, it just seems like this world is going to pot. It just seems like this world is descending into darkness. Here's what I want you to see in this text. I find this so interesting. Noah's world is described as corrupt and wicked and evil and all of these things, but Noah chose a different path. And I think the reason Noah chose the path that he chose was because he recognized that there is a better question to ask than why is the world the way it is? That's interesting to think about, and you could certainly go back to, and point to a lot of reasons why the world is the way it is. It's interesting to evaluate and even debate, but Noah at least seems to believe that this is not the most helpful question we can ask in our culture, in any culture. Noah seems to ask a better question and a different question than why is the world the way that it is? And here's the question Noah asked, is what kind of person does God want me to be today? And that seems to be the way that Noah lived, in a corrupt, evil, disengaged culture from the ways of God. Noah and his family seem to ask the question, what kind of person does God want me to be today? Look at how he's described in the text. Verse eight, Noah found favor. Verse nine, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Noah understood that he did not have the power probably as one person to change the world. That is a big task, too big of a task for one person. But he had, did have the ability to choose how he wanted to live and what kind of person he wanted to be. And that one small act made the biggest difference. 
He said, I, I, I can't change everything. I can't change corrupt systems. I can't change evil behavior. I can't change the tra- trajectory that culture is on. But what I can do is I can choose what kind of person I want to be living in this culture. That's my choice. That, that's the choice that I get to engage in. So notice how, again, how he's described that Noah, first of all, found favor. This word, uh, this Hebrew word is used a lot outside of the Hebrew scriptures, and it's used as an expression of love, Um, almost like a Valentine's Day card, a term of affection that you are beautiful, you are wise, you are helpful. My cousin totally missed the ball on this one year. As as a joke to his family, he baked a, a, a cake that was a heart. And he frosted the cake and had it all beautiful. And then on top, he wanted to put a Valentine's Day message. And here's what he chose. Dear family, I tolerate you. Right? <laughs> you know, just as they didn't find it that funny. But he, he thought it was hilarious, you know, because he obviously loves his family a, a lot. But um, Noah and his life, it's like God is sending him a Valentine's Day thing. That, man, your life is beautiful in my eyes. That's the, how this Hebrew word, that you are living in the midst of ugliness, in the midst of cultural decay, in the midst of hostility toward my ways, Noah, your life is beautiful. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And the, 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 uh, uh, the, the question of this word is whose favor are you living for? Right? Do you want this world uh, to, to see you and be full of pride? Are you looking for a love note from the culture? To say, man, we just love you and we, we appreciate you. You don't seem to have any opinions at all. You don't make any waves. You, you, you're just not wet that way. Do you, do you want culture to write you the love note? Or do you want God to see you and how you live and how your family lives? And for God to say, man, that's beautiful. I am pleased with their life. And so Noah lived in a different culture and, and, and lived in a difficult culture. And his chief priority was he said, man, I'm going to live to please God. I'm going to live. To, I, I want God to look down at me and to be pleased and say, man, your life is beautiful. Your life is really something. And, and that's just how Noah lived. He's described as righteous. That how, do you do, how do you respond when you live in a culture that is choosing wrong? Here's what Noah would say. You choose right. You choose right. You, you, we think we got to stop them from choosing wrong. Noah said, no, I can't stop that. Culture's going to go the way it's going to go. Government's going to go the way it's going to go. Life is going to go on the way it's going to go. Me and my family, we can choose right. We can choose to be holy. We can choose to be good. Here's the other thing it says about Noah. He was blameless among the people. This word could be described as perfect. But here's the thing you need to know about Noah. He was not perfect. He was not. He made mistakes because we all make mistakes. But here's what this is describing. The people of his culture saw his life and saw him as different. I want to just lean into this a little bit because I think for most of my adult life, I think Christianity has been struggling with this. That we, as a lot of times as Christians, we don't want people to see us as different. We want people to see us as the same. I consume the same media. I use the same language. We have the same ethics. And I understand why a lot of Christianity has chosen this path. Because just to be blunt about it, we don't want people to think that we are freaks. And strange. And, and different. We don't want people to look at us and say, man, you are, your life is just, it's too bizarre. And I understand not wanting to send that message. But I'm afraid that me- the message that has gotten sent instead is that, man, Jesus really won't change that much. If you come to him, if you give your life to him, he's not going to change that much. Look, I'm just like you. And the reality is, 
just speak for me, Jesus really should change quite a bit. Uh, he's gonna change our worldview. He's gonna change our attitudes. He's gonna change the way we love one another. He's gonna change our ethics and our habits and our lifestyle. Really, the truth of the matter is he changes almost everything. And so I'm not sure looking different is bad unless looking different in us becomes a, a feeling of superiority. Looking different becomes I'm better. And which is just a ridiculous thing for a Christian to engage in anyway, because we understand that any change that has happened in our life or in our family is because of Jesus. It's his spirit, it's his commands, it's his way that has made the difference. So for any Christian to brag about how they're different or to brag about their lifestyle, it just makes no sense because Jesus has done all the work, I'm just along for the ride. So here's what is said about Noah. He walked faithfully with God. Said another way, later in the text, he did everything just as God commanded him. God was in charge and Noah was the follower. So how do you live in a world that has lost its way? How do you live in a world that has lost its way? You wanna get angry? I think we have too much of that. You wanna get disengaged and just flee from culture? I think we've got too much of that. Right? You want to get depressed and despondent and just throw up your hands and say, you know, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. I think we have enough of that. I think Jesus would call his followers to a different way. And I think he would say, man, you can't control the culture around you. You can't control government. You can't, you can't even control your neighbor. I have a hard time controlling my kids, right? So, and they live with me. So I, I'm in that season of parenting right now where I am, I rest assured I can't change the world, right? Um, I'm working on Sam and Lila right now. Um, and so I think what Noah would teach us is, man, you wanna, you wanna make a great decision today? Live to please God. Just say, God, God, me and my family, we want to live to please you. We want you to look down at us and say, that is a beautiful life, to live to please God. Live to be different. Don't be afraid of being different. Don't be superior, right? Because any difference is the result of God's work in you. So don't be superior, but don't be afraid to be different, right? Don't, don't be afraid to look different and live faithfully. There's a, such a better question of, I hear, and I ask it all the time too, about why is our world the way that it is? And people want to kind of go back and examine culture. People want to go back and examine government. People want to go back and examine all sorts of things. And I, what I learned from Noah this week is there's just a better question to ask. How does God want me to live today? In a broken culture, in a corrupt system, in an evil culture. How does God want me to live today and to leave this place and say, man, when we eat out today, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live that way. When I go to work tomorrow, I'm gonna live that way. When I'm parenting my kids, I'm gonna live that way. I'm gonna get up every morning and ask, not why is the world the way it is, but instead, how does God want me to live today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And we wanna ask that question today. How do you want us to live today? What does it look like? What does it mean? That however we would describe our culture, that maybe we would describe it as corrupt. Maybe we would describe it as cruel. 
maybe we would describe it as violent. However we would describe the culture, you have called your followers to live these holy lives, these different lives. But it's gonna require us every day to not get pulled in to the ugliness, to not get pulled into the mess, but instead to wake up every morning and say, man, how do you want me to live today? What does it look like for me to be a follower of yours today and then to live that life out? Help us to do it this week by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.